All right, let's go before the Lord again. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this hour that you've appointed to speak to us, your children, through the teaching of the gospel of Christ Jesus. I pray that you help your people to hear from you and for me to speak that which is true and faithful. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for this life, even more for the life to come, the life that we now possess by faith. We thank you for all who have been gathered to hear this message. May you speak to them. We honor you, glorify you for things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, First Samuel 9. First Samuel 9, beginning at verse 15. And we are going to work our way all the way to the end of the chapter and kind of spill some into First Samuel 10. So this is what the Lord recorded for us and said, Now the Lord had told Samuel in his Ear the day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I've looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, There he is, the man of whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me, where is the seer's house? And Samuel answered and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today, and tomorrow I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your heart. But as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not be anxious about them for they have been found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and on all your father's house? And so answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? And my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin, why then do you speak like this to me? Now Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall, and had them sit in the place of honor among those who were invited. There were about thirty persons. And someone said to the cook, Bring the portion which I gave you, of which I said to you, set set it apart. So the cook took up the thigh with his upper part, and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, Here it is, what was kept back, it was set apart for you. It for until this time it has been kept for you since I said I invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. When they had come down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the top of the house. They arose early, and it was about the dawning of the day that Samuel called Saul on the top of the house, saying, Get up, that I may send you on your way. And Saul arose 
and both of them went outside, he and Samuel. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And he went on, But you stand here a while, that I may announce to you the word of God. And that is the word of God. We have one title. Very sorry. Maybe I can get to I can get to. But the main title is The Donkeys Have Been Found. The donkeys have been found, and related to that is do not be anxious. The donkeys have been found. And we're gonna come, we're gonna begin from long ways out and then get to our text. We preach Christ, we believe in Christ. And that means we believe and preach the offense of the cross and that without apology. Because when we have God's message, it is not our message. It is his message. So it has to be broadcast as he deems it to be communicated. So the offense of the cross has a lot of things that are attached to it, that are related to it. So when we are talking about the cross, we cannot just talk about those things that we like. But the whole counsel of God, which is necessary to make the cross what it is, to make it the good news that it is. The offense of the gospel is not just that God saves sinners apart from our own works, apart from our own goodness, but that he saves us through the free, free, free imputation of righteousness, and that means grace. And that way of doing salvation is opposed to man's self-righteousness because naturally we want to earn our keep. We want to earn our bonus. (laughs) Salvation is not a bonus that we get because we were very diligent workers. We were faithful people. God does not give salvation as a payout for something wonderful that we did. So the offense of the gospel comes from God himself and is necessitated by who he is and what he determined to do to exalt his own name. So all of creation was made by him, and for him, even our salvation is to the glory of his name, 
he wants to be exalted for his beauty, for his holiness, for his righteousness. Because we have Miss America, we have the beauty pageants. Why? Because the women are displaying the glory of their beauty the glory of their own perfections, which men come and acknowledge and say, look at her, she is very beautiful, she deserves to be Miss America. And God says, look at me, I am more beautiful than Miss America, give me glory. That's what is happening. So everything said, we need to understand that God did not save people because of their misery. God did not save people because of their misery. That's not the driving motivation behind his salvation. Because if that were the case, then he would have saved all men and women because all people are miserable by nature. All men get sick and they die. So if God does not save all men, and he does not, and yet we know that he is the almighty God, he has all the power to save everyone if he so desired. It is he who makes people to differ. In every way, he is the one who makes us to differ. The saved and the unsaved. Even the differences among the saved, (laughs) it is he for his own glory who has made us to differ. And with that understanding, it stands to reason that this whole matter of salvation is not at all about our comfort. It is not about the comfort of man, but thank God, the comfort of the elect is also part of the package. It just so happened that it is part of the package. And thank God that he determined to give us comfort, even as he is glorifying himself. And his glory, and his power, his perfection, and his godness will be manifested and will be made known in that he chose some to salvation. He did the choosing. And he predestined others to condemnation. As he said to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up that I may show, demonstrate my power through you, through your destruction. Pharaoh was someone else's grandbaby. Pharaoh was some cute little boy. And God said, I am raising him up He's not going to be eaten by the crocodiles in the Nile. He's not going to be bitten by the black mambas or cobras or whatever thing cannot befall 
him because I am raising him up so that I may demonstrate my power through his destruction. That's the God of the Bible. That's the God of the Bible. And there's a flip side to that. For his elect, he says he is raising us that he may demonstrate his power of salvation to make you accepted, to make you holy and righteous, to give you eternal life. That's also a manifestation of his power. So there is no arguing with that because it is a faithful testimony of the scriptures. And this truth, Apostle Paul taught in the book of Romans chapter 9, where he said, God hardens whom he wills. And he has mercy on whom he wills. It is all of God's doing. So if you believe in the gospel, it is not because you walk on the walk up on the right side of the bed. It's because God was pleased to make you believe. He gave you the power, he gave you the ability to see Christ, to make sense of Christ. But if that is true, that it is God who hardens, and it is He who causes us to will, to come to him, there is an objection that comes with that. There is a very good objection, a natural objection. And I think it has to be raised as an objection. It's necessary. If God is the one who has the power to save everyone, and he does not save all, why then does he still find fault? with those that he did not choose to salvation. Why? This is not right. Why does he still find fault? He has the power to save all, and it is not like God could say, I did not save all because my shipment of grain was confiscated by the Iranians, So I had no option but to ration salvation. And had it not been of the bad Iranians, I surely would have saved all. Or had it not been because of the stubbornness of the human heart, I would have saved all. But look at me, I really did my best. I tried my best, but it just did not happen for me. That is unfortunately how God is presented. As this deity who is wringing his hands, hoping that some people will choose him and come to him. And if they don't decide for him, then he is helpless to do anything about it. That is not the God of the Bible. Okay? The God of the Bible says, of those that were given to me by my father, I will lose not one. I'm coming for them. (laughs) I will get every one of them because my name is on them. But see this question again. Why does he still find fault? 
It only makes sense if someone has understood that both salvation and reprobation are the work of God, that it is God doing both. And in much of the Reformed teaching, and some, unfortunately, who call themselves sovereign grace, you hear preachers say, it is God who brings sinners to heaven by his grace. And that part is true. It is God who brings sinners to heaven by his grace. But then they say, hell is what people and for themselves. They send themselves to hell by their own stubbornness, by their own sins, as if those who go to heaven got there by something that they personally did. So if no one is going to heaven by their own doing, then none is going to hell by their own doing. Because there's no difference between those who go to heaven and those who go to hell. They're going to be even more moral people in hell than would be in heaven because moralism has a tendency to cause people to reject Christ. They're like, look at me. I am so beautiful. I'm righteous. I pay my taxes and stuff. I do not need imputed righteousness. I'm a good person, okay? And that teaching by the Reformed people and some of the sovereign grace, obviously Armenians already are making a mess of everything, is a dilution of God's argument. It's a dilution of the offense. There is none who chooses hell or heaven. You could not choose hell. You could not choose heaven. That is God's doing. It is God who determined those things for the different people. So we cannot remove the offense of God's message because it is part of what is going to magnify his grace towards you individually as a person. This is not about all the other people. It's about you. It's about you. It's about you. Let's go to Romans 9. We won't work that many verses, but I want to close that argument. Romans 9 from 19, from verse 19. Paul says, You say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? But indeed, God responds through Apostle Paul and says, All men, who are you to reply against God? Show me your resume. Show me your power. Where were you when I created all these things? Remember the conversation with Job. What are your qualifications? <laughs> who are you? Who the thing formed, say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? 
that is true of anything that we have made ourselves. There's no couch that's going to complain and say, why did you put me like this? Why did you make me like this? No pot, no car, no nothing has the right to complain to the builder, to the maker. And that response is saying God does not all his creation an answer to justify his own sovereign will and purpose. So I do not owe you an explanation because you have no right to speak. <laughs> you have no right to speak. And people think they have a right to speak before God because they don't know the God of the Bible. When Je- Isaiah, in Je- Isaiah 6, when the Lord opened, opened him up to see the third heavens and he saw the Lord, he said, woe is me. That's going to be the response of everybody who sees him in his glory. I am so undone. Take me out of here. Remove me from here. This is not good for me. That's who God is. I am so undone. I am ruined. So God says, I do not owe you or anyone an explanation. And that response of God's freedom as the porter of his creation is designed for you and me to have a very high view of God and of Christ and of his grace and mercy, of his cross, so that we only boast in his cross by which we have been accepted in the beloved. We have been accepted already. There's nothing that we do or can do to be accepted. As there is nothing that we can do to not be accepted. You cannot decide your way out of Jesus. It's impossible. Okay? You cannot. Even trying to renounce your year citizenship is very hard to do. It's very hard to do. And this is in the matter of man. Now you're thinking of God. You cannot renounce your heavenly citizenship. It's impossible because you never gave it to yourself. Okay? It was granted you, so you cannot renounce it. You have no power. Legally, you do not have the power. So Paul continues in Romans 9 verse 21 says, Does not the porter have power over the clay from the same lamp to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? So see that there are two sides to the work of the porter. He makes both vessels. There's no vessel that is making itself to be anything. The porter is the one who makes both vessels, one for honor and one for dishonor, one for putting flowers inside and the other one to remain outside in the rain. And yet they're the same vessels. And many will say, well, he only makes the one vessel unto salvation. But the one of dishonor makes itself because of sin and stubbornness. And that's what I'm saying, that it's not true. This is just an attempt to exalt the human flesh by removing the offense of God's determination. Verse 22. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, 
endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So we are now being told God's motivation for how he has designed salvation. He wants to show, to demonstrate his wrath that he can be very angry. It's necessary for him to demonstrate that he gets really mad. How mad? He creates hell. That's how mad he gets. So he has vessels prepared by him for destruction. For all things are of him and are for him. All things were made by him and they are for his glory. So he is glorified in both the salvation of his people and also the condemnation of those that he did not redeem in Christ. And then to the side B of the conversation, verse 23, and that he might, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. So both vessels were prepared beforehand for his glory. But what is happening in verse 22 is so that those who are in verse 23 will look and be amazed at what God has done for them and say, hallelujah to God's grace. Amazing grace. Now, verse 23 and 22 will cause you to really sing amazing grace for what it is. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Okay? So, what Paul is saying is that Reprobation happens as the side B of election. And that for a purpose, that you and I, who are the saved, the vessels of mercy, may know the riches of his glory or the riches of his grace. That God's grace is so incredibly rich, you will be praising him forever and ever. And that means you cannot proclaim faithfully of the riches of his mercy as only saving us from sin. It goes beyond just being saved from sin. There is a side B to the story that many do not want to talk about that magnifies his mercy because God is magnifying his mercy. The side of reprobation, he's magnifying his beauty, the riches of his grace. You won't appreciate food until or unless you are extremely hungry. That's the point. The hungrier you get, the more you appreciate food. The thirstier you get, the more you appreciate water. And God says, if you look at the depth that I've sunk some in reprobation, and I did not take you there, you can sing Amazing Grace for all of eternity. Okay? So we cannot downplay that. And these are difficult things to say, because they are hard things. They are not easy things to say. But they are the reality of the story, of the message. It is very offensive. And we should declare it. But the moment that I do not declare it, I cease to be useful to anybody. And I will end up also 
not saying a whole lot more other things. I have to say everything that God gives me to say. If you ask me, I wish it was not so. If you ask me, humanly speaking, I would want everyone to be saved. I would want for God to save every man who has ever lived. I would. Because if hell is what God describes it to be, I would not want anybody to be there for 20 million years. And then God says, oh, you haven't begun yet. We are just beginning. I would not want for that to happen. But then it is not about James. (laughs) So necessity has been laid on me to preach this gospel. And as Paul said, war is me if I do not preach the gospel because God has clearly given me knowledge of it and ability to speak to it. And with that, someone within the sermon who go back to the story of Israel and so. And it's wonderful. So in First Samuel 9, First Samuel 9 opens by telling us of the person of Tish, a Benjamite who was the father of Saul. Tish was a man of valor, a prominent man, a man of great wealth, and high standing in society. And he had a son, so tall and very handsome. This is amazing that God knows to say, yeah, I made him handsome, I'm going to tell you about it. (laughs) And of all things, Tish happened to lose his donkeys. Not the chickens. He lost his donkeys and Saul was dispatched to go look for them as to recover them back to the father. And that means Tish was a type of God the father who had donkeys. Donkeys that had gone astray because of sin and so they had to be recovered back to the father. He had donkeys that had strayed. The donkeys were his before they went astray. And that means God the Father had his elect chosen in Christ, but they were not naturally righteous people. They were donkeys. In other words, they were stubborn sinners. That's the point of having them as donkeys and not horses. And something must be done for them to be recovered back to him. Otherwise, they will remain in this lost condition and they will be eaten by the wild animals. And so they have to be recovered. The donkeys were lost by God's doing. God was behind the straying of the donkeys. Just as our sin was ordained of God. You did not ordain your sin. You just discovered that you're a sinner. There's nothing that you do to yourself to become a sinner. You are who you are. As Paul said, by the grace of God, I am who I am. Or I am what I am. 
it is an offensive saying to a lot of religious people to say God ordained our sin. He ordained every sin that we ever do. And he also built the boundaries of what type of sin you're going to do and to what extent. It is not because you're a sensible person that you have not done certain things. It's because God has built a boundary for you that you cannot breach. Okay? So you find out that the things that you do are not necessarily the things that some other person does. The other person has their own stuff according to the boundaries that God has set for them. That's the truth of the Bible. But how does God propose to recover the lost donkeys? If they should be recovered, it must be by a way that gives him glory. And it has to be his way. And religion, even this morning, has its many formulas and prescriptions on how a sinner is to be recovered back to God. They're writing a lot of prescriptions this morning. <laughs> One prescription will say, be a good person and you'll be recovered back to God. Do some good works. Come to our church and we'll baptize you. Do the law. Become a better human being. And by these, they say, you can be recovered back to God. And humanly speaking, there's nothing wrong with trying to be a better person, a good person, a faithful person, a moral person. It is highly encouraged. There's nothing wrong with that. Because God created us not as wild animals, but as moral beings. So we should be kind even, especially in the work of us having been redeemed, we should be considerate. We should not be obnoxious. should be generous. But that is not the way of salvation. That is not the way of God's salvation. And that is where the offense kicks in. Because if I went to Muslims and Buddhists and taught them to be kind, to be generous, and they would agree with me, they would invite me to lunch, they will do everything for me. But the moment I tell them that this is not the way of salvation, they're going to be offended. And they are being offended at Christ. So God was teaching in this story the matter of law and grace, of law and gospel as he has been faithfully doing everywhere else in the Bible. So the people of Israel have rejected God's reign over them because they want a king to go before them to rule and judge them just as their neighboring nations. But God was not amused. He was not pleased because to him, this was a rejection of his own rule of grace over them for the rule of law. And God is a mighty practical preacher. If anyone refuses God's rule, then they have defaulted back to law 
because there's no other middle ground, there's no neutral ground when it comes to the matter of salvation. You're either under law or you're under grace. There's no middle ground. There's no mixing either. So he told Israel what was going to happen to them because of the king that they asked for, and it was not going to be as pretty as the king was handsome. Their king was going to be ruthless and would impoverish them. He would take everything away from them and work them hard. And we have developed the arguments and said this king was the picture of the law. So was a picture of the law. And that is why he was introduced to us as this very handsome human being. And is the same reason why we had Absalom, the son of David, introduced to us as this incredibly beautiful person, and yet both were ruthless people. And we developed the understanding that when beauty, striking beauty, amazing beauty, and ruthlessness are combined in one, that is the picture of the law, which is beautiful in that it is holy, it is just, it is good. And yet, it is the letter that kills. It is the letter that brings death and condemnation. The law is good, but it's bad for you because you're a sinner. And many are attracted to the beauty of the law because they think they can do it. As many in Israel were attracted to Absalom, as many will be attracted to, to Saul. But God says, no, these are bad for you. I'm going to kill you. So when the donkeys were lost, Tish dispatched Saul in the company of his servant to go find them. But in all their efforts, they failed to locate the donkeys as to recover them back to the father. And Saul saw, as the picture of the law, gave testimony of the failure of the law to serve sinners and bring them back to God. That is the point. So go to 1 Samuel 9 verse 5. 1 Samuel 9 verse 5. When they'd come to the land of Zuf, so said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. So that was an acknowledgement of the failure of the Lord to recover lost donkeys. Because lost donkeys can only be recovered one of two ways, by law or grace. By law or grace. So the first attempt of the law failed, and that means Saul represented the testimony of the old covenant. The covenant of the law made nothing perfect because it could not recover anyone back to God. And that was one of its weaknesses because of our sin. The law cannot recover. So the testimony to say, okay, we need to go back to the Father now because I don't think this is working. I don't think we're going to find the donkeys. There has to be another way to find the donkeys. 
But the unnamed servant we saw, remember Saul was in the company of an unnamed servant. He had some other useful knowledge as to how the donkeys would be recovered. He knew of a certain man of God in the city, a man whom he said was of great honor and faithfulness. Whatever he said came to pass, whose prophecies were always true. And that unnamed man was the picture of the Holy Spirit giving testimony of Christ because the Holy Spirit prophesies of Christ. Yes, the Holy Spirit operated under the law, but only to prophesy, not to recover, but to prophesy of the one to do the recovery. So the name of the person who accompanied Saul is not given, is not talked about purposefully. It's not like God did not know who he was because he is representing the Holy Spirit who does not talk about himself. The Holy Spirit does not talk about the Holy Spirit. He talks about some other man in the city who is faithful. He talks about Christ. And that means Samuel, who is in the immediate picture, was a type of Christ, as we have developed in the previous messages. But as they were headed to see the man of God, they were met with some group of young women who were headed to draw water. And on asking about the whereabouts of the man of God, these women had a mouthful of gospel testimony to share. Here, the conversation again, First Samuel 9, beginning at verse 11. These are some very wonderful sisters. We'd love to meet such kind of people as you go to fetch water. As they went up the hill to the city, they met some young women going out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? And they answered them and said, yes, there he is just ahead of you. Hurry now. She stopped there. Why expand this? They say, hurry now for today. He came to this city because there's a sacrifice of the people today on the high place. So the seer, the prophet is just ahead of you. The women said they pointed to the man of God. And that to say these women carried the testimony of the Holy Spirit first in their going to draw water. In their going not to fetch firewood, but in drawing water, they are pointing to Christ. And they said, the man has come to this city today. And so they defined the purpose. The mission of the man, they knew it. His mission, they said, because there is a sacrifice of the people on the high place today. And that tells us the central mission of the Lord Jesus in his appearance in the flesh. Why did Jesus come into the world? It was that he may die as the sacrifice of the people and put away their sin. Verse 18, they continued. As soon as you come into the city, 
you surely find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes because he must bless the sacrifice. They have all the details. He must bless the sacrifice afterward. Afterward. Those who are invited will eat. Those who are invited afterward. Now therefore go up for about this time you'll find him. So the people who the people will not eat. The people will not have salvation until he comes. Because without death, there's no remission of sin. The man of God has come in relation to the sacrifice, a giving of a sacrifice. This is the main event. And there is a people who have been invited and they will not eat until he has blessed the sacrifice. Christ Jesus must come in the flesh and bless the sacrifice that is himself by way of his death. And then afterward, those who are invited will eat. So pay attention to the ordering of the words. Those invited are the elect, invited by God. Those who are on the guest list. So you and I are in Christ, have come to Christ because we were on the guest list and there's no one who put themselves on the guest list. You do not self-invite. In Zimbabwe, we call that gate crashing. Okay. <laughs> Those who are invited, the elect, will not eat until the sacrifice has been given. But election is not the fullness of salvation. It lays the groundwork for our partaking of the benefits of the sacrifice when it has been given. Election is not the righteousness. The righteousness comes when the Christ has come to bless the sacrifice, to be crucified. Then afterwards, the elect may eat and have eternal life. So we eat of the sacrifice. Apart from Christ Jesus dying, you have no claim to eternal life. Because the death of Christ, the blood of Christ, is the currency that you use to tread for eternal life. That's what God has given us to make the tread, to make the exchange. As Jesus said, what shall a man give? Win the whole world, but what do you have to give to make the exchange? You can win the whole world, but is the whole world enough to make the exchange? Jesus' anticipated answer is no, it is not enough. But something still needs to be given to make the exchange. So the exchange is come through the blood of Christ. And once the blood has been shed, then all who have been invited have title. They're justified. 
They're perfected. They're made holy. This is where it happened. Okay? So this is all cross language. The women are preaching the cross by the Holy Spirit, of course. The cross was the place on which God justified his people. You see, in the conversation, the women put everything to the high place and to the sacrifice. As soon as Jesus begins to teach, he was obsessed with his own death, obsessed with his own crucifixion, okay? Because that's where the blessing was going to happen. Let's go to 1 Samuel 9. 15, beginning at 15. So that's kind of the background of where we are. This is what has happened. So the story continues, verse 15. Now, the Lord had told Samuel, in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, tomorrow about this time, I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. So Samuel was already expecting Saul to come this way. And the wandering of Saul and his servant was caused by God but he wandered to the right place. <laughs> so the wandering of Saul, as was the wandering of the donkeys, as our own wanderings in this life, caused by God. They wandered to exactly where God wanted them to be. Whatever the circumstances of life God ordains, they take us to exactly where he wants us to be. God said, the cry of my people has come to me to give them a king. I will answer them and give them what they have requested of me. And this was not in the same tone as when God said the same thing in Exodus 3. Let's go to Exodus 3. Exodus 3 from verse 7. Exodus 3, 7 and 8. And the Lord said, this was when the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush. The Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So God says, I have heard the cry of my people because of the oppression of the taskmasters, 
in Egypt. And Egypt was a land of slavery. The taskmasters, taskmasters were pictures of the law. That's what the law does. The law is not of freedom. It brings bondage. So the people are crying out for salvation. And God says, I've come down. That is incarnation of Christ. I have come down in the flesh for the sake of delivering my people from the slavery of sin, death, and condemnation of which Egypt was but a picture. Okay? In Psalm 9, God spoke not of oppression. In Exodus 3, he talked about salvation. I have come down to deliver you. In Psalm 9, he was giving them over to oppression. I heard your request. You need to be oppressed. I'm going to do that. <laughs> so he's doing the exact opposite of Exodus. But the point is, whether salvation or bondage, God is behind it. God is behind both bondage and salvation. Because he alone has the power to do it. Verse 17. And when Saul saw, sorry, and when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, that's going back to 1 Samuel 9. There he is, the man of whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. So God pointed to Samuel, the man he had appointed to reign, to rule over his people. In other words, God appointed the law to rule over his people. To reign in sin and death. As Christ Jesus was also appointed of God to reign to life and righteousness. So God gave the law knowing full well that it would kill his people. That the law would condemn them. And so he gave them soul knowing full well what he was going to do to them. He could have found a different person if he wanted. He could have made Saul to be a different kind of person if he wanted, but he did not. Verse 18. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me, where is the seer's house? So Saul is interested in finding the seer. And Samuel self-identified and said, I am he. As Jesus, as Jesus would say, when asked of the Jews, you say, I am he. And that was the self-disclosure of Jesus. Who are you looking for? I'm looking for Jesus. I am he. I'm looking for the seer. I'm looking for the prophet. Where is he? I am he. Verse 19. And Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. And tomorrow I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your heart. So Saul must go up before Samuel to the high place. You're going to need to pay attention to what I'm going to say. Saul must go up before Samuel to the high place. The high place was the place of sacrifice. And would eat with him. And then on the morrow, on the following day, he will be set loose then I will let you go 
And this saying, the law must accompany Christ to the place of his death in fulfillment. And afterward, it will be set loose, brought to its end, the end of the old covenant. Because as you know, the cross was where Jesus made the new covenant in his blood. And that's where Saul was set loose. By fulfillment, the law will go back to the Father fulfilled on behalf of those that were invited to salvation. The law does, does just not go back. The law doesn't just go back to the Father. It must be fulfilled. It must be fulfilled. Who will speak to that? But someone says this to me. But as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not be anxious about them, for they have been found. Someone says, do not be anxious for your donkeys that were lost three days ago. So he knows about the donkeys. He knows that Saul is still very anxious and is the reason why he has sought him. He's anxious to recover the donkeys. He does not want to go back to the father empty-handed. Three days, it seemed like the donkeys that belonged to the father had been lost forever. As Christ was given over to death and in the grave, it looked like the recovery of the donkeys had failed. The donkeys seemingly sounded like, looked like they've been lost. But no, this was actually the way to recover them. Samuel tells Saul to not worry about the donkeys because they had been found. How is that possible? To Samuel, by God's revelation, But how do you recover a donkey that is a sinner? This is not talking about donkeys. How do you recover a donkey that is you and me as sinners? How do we get recovered back to God? Let's go to Exodus 13. Exodus 13, beginning at verse 13. This is in the context of Israel having left Egypt and God is giving them some rules about redemption. Rules of redemption. And he's talking of the firstborn. Verse 18, God says, But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. You shall kill it. If you do not have a lamb to redeem the donkey, the donkey must be killed. Cannot be recovered. And all the firstborn of men among his sons you shall redeem. 
So every firstborn of a donkey must be redeemed with a lamb. Otherwise, what happens? Its neck must be broken. It must be condemned. Absent the lamb, the donkey must be condemned. So it is the lamb that makes the difference in whether the donkey lives or dies. So if the donkeys of the father are to be recovered, to be redeemed back to the father, it means what? It means a lamb was found. It means a lamb was found. A lamb to redeem them. Christ to redeem them. And that is why Samuel spoke to Saul the matter of the recovery of the donkeys as soon as Saul showed up. And that on account of the sacrifice, on account of the sacrifice, on account of the day of atonement where the sacrifice was to be blessed, Christ had to recover the donkeys. Don't tell me that Christ died and went back to the Father with the testimony that he did not find the donkeys. Because if he doesn't justify the donkeys, then he did not find the donkeys. Because what the donkeys need is not more hay, they need justification. Okay? <laughs> so it was not for Saul, it was not for the law to recover the donkeys. But of whom, of him who said, I came to find I came to seek and find that which was lost. What was lost? The donkeys. So he knew he came to seek and find that which was lost. So did he find that which was lost? That's the question. That's those who were invited to come and eat of the sacrifice. They explained who the donkeys were. And when these have eaten, because the sacrifice has been blessed, then what is the next testimony? Pay attention to this. The donkeys have been lost, and you have a group of people who have been invited. And these people cannot eat until the sacrifice has been blessed. But as soon as the sacrifice is blessed, the testimony is, Even the donkeys have been found. The donkeys have been found. The donkeys are found not because they repented. And not because they stopped being donkeys. In other words, stopped sinning. That's not the condition of them being recovered. The donkeys have been found because the sacrifice has been given and has been blessed Christ has died and perfected them. Exodus 13, verse 14. So it shall be, God says, when a son asks you in time to come, saying, what is this? That you shall say to them, by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt out of the house of bondage. By the strength of hand, by the strength of his hand outstretched on Mount Calvary, the Lord brought us out of the bondage of sin and condemnation from Egypt. 
the house of bondage, the house of slavery, the house of sin, of death, of condemnation, the testimony of the law against donkeys. Donkeys, beasts of burden, always pulling lords. That's what a lot of people use donkeys for. People don't use donkeys for milk. They use them to pull burdens on their back or they yoke them. And Jesus, when he comes to his donkeys, he says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, because they are donkeys. <laughs> and I'll give you rest from your labor. Verse 15, and it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go. Pharaoh was stubborn. God made Pharaoh to be stubborn. Because Pharaoh was a picture of the law. Because the law would not let a sinner go without fulfillment. Pharaoh was a type of God the Father. Who will not let sinners go without their appropriate sacrifice, without their appropriate death. A sinner must be justified. And how? And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord, this is the way of setting sinners free from Egypt, killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. So if the sinners who are in slavery to sin, have to be set free. Something must die. God must cause the death of the firstborn. In the land of Egypt, both of the firstborn of man and the firstborn of the beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but the firstborn of my sons I redeem. The firstborn of beasts, even that of Pharaoh, was the picture of Christ. Christ is the firstborn. It is he who is in, in the picture. He is the firstborn of God. Not firstborn in terms of creation, but firstborn in terms of rank. He has always been the preeminent son of God. And it was by and at his death, smitten of God. Christ was smitten of God. In the picture of the firstborn of Pharaoh. Because remember what God said. Yet one more plague. I'll kill the firstborn of Pharaoh. And he will let my people go. So when God has killed his son. Then everything that is against his people must let them go. Sin, death, condemnation. In other words, justification. So. At the death of the firstborn, also at the death of the Passover, these are all speaking to the one person. The firstborn of Pharaoh is speaking of Jesus. The Passover lamb is speaking to Jesus. The unleavened bread is speaking to Jesus. When this has happened, then God's people experience their exodus from the land of slavery by being justified. From all their sins. They are no more under the taskmasters of Pharaoh. Remember the taskmasters? They came with a decree from Pharaoh and said, Here are your quarter of bricks. 
everyone has to make a certain number of bricks. But I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to give you the straw. You're going to have to find the straw for yourself, but you cannot miss the quarter. And that is what the law is saying. The law demands righteousness. It never relaxes. It demands on a sinner. It demands the same thing, and that is perfection. But how do you come out of that? The Son of God, the firstborn, has to die. And that's how Israel was justified from the power of Pharaoh. When God says, when I see the blood, I shall pass over you. I will justify you. When I see the blood, when he sees the blood, not when you see the blood. When he sees the blood, he shall justify you. The angel of death will pass over you. The blood was shed on Mount Calvary. That's where God saw the blood of Christ shed. Christ did not have blood before the incarnation. Okay? God says, and we exit Exodus, it shall be a sign on your hand and as friendless between your eyes, for by the strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So the emphasis is on the cross of Christ. That is the strength. Many see weakness, but that is the power of God under salvation. That is the strength that delivered us from Egypt in that regard. First Samuel 9, verse 21. And so answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite? Of the smallest of the tribes of Israel and my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin. Why then do you speak to me like this? So, so try to do some self-deprecation. He was pleasantly surprised in his person for this kind of honor. He realized the enormity of the call to lead God's people to try and save God's people from their enemies. The law understood that it had a big burden and that it was unable to save sinners. The law understood that. It is sinners that thought and think they can do the law and end salvation by it. The law understood that it could not save anyone. It is sinners who think that they can be saved by the law. That's the issue. Also, let me, by way of qualification, say this. A picture of the law is not limited to just the Levites. God used all kinds of things to bring the same testimony of bondage and inability to deliver. And those were pictures of the law. And it could be from a different tribe even. <clears throat> that is not the Levites, okay? So it just depends on the story. Verse 22. Now Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and had them sit in the place of honor among those who were invited. There were about 30 persons. So Saul and his servant were brought into the hall and were seated in the place of honor among those who were invited the hall where the invited people were 
and where eating of the sacrifice is a picture of the New Testament. <clears throat> and that to say, the law, though it could not save, had honor among those who are saved. The redeemed honor the law, but they do so by looking to the sacrifice that honored and fulfilled the law on their behalf. And because God has blessed them with the righteousness that is agreeable with everything that the law says. So we honor the law that way, not by trying to do it, because we can't. Only Christ could give the law what the law required. Let's continue. Verse 20. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion which I gave you, of which I said to you, set it apart. So there was a portion of the sacrifice that was set apart for Saul to eat. In other words, there was a portion of Christ for the Lord to eat by way of fulfillment, by way of Christ being cursed. Because Jesus did not just come to fulfill the law. He accomplished many things of which fulfilling the law was part of his mission. So the law had its own portion of accomplishing through the death of Christ. So the law must be satisfied of the Christ of the sacrifice. It has a portion in Christ that it has to eat to satisfaction. It cannot go back to the Father hungry. And that means unsatisfied, unfulfilled. Because a hungry man is an angry man. As Saul was fully fed, and so as Saul was fully fed by Samuel, there was a big chunk of meat. <laughs> if you were to eat it, you'd be having some serious indigestion. Saul was satisfied by what was given him by Samuel from the sacrifice. To say Christ satisfied whatever the hunger the law had before he sent it back to the Father. But remember, Saul was among those who were invited, but he is not going to remain among those who are invited. Saul says, I'm going to do this thing. Someone says, I'm going to do this thing, and then I'm going to send you away. You're not remaining in the hall. You're going to have to send away, to be sent away, because I've given you your portion. That's 24. So the cook took up the thigh with his upper part and set it before Saul. And someone said, here it is, what has kept back. It was set apart for you. It, for until this time, it has been kept for you since I 
said I invited the people. So until this time, this sacrifice was always for the law. Christ was to die to fulfill the law. This portion of me was set apart for you. It has been kept for you. And so Christ Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law, that he may redeem those under the law. But the law must eat. The law must eat. Every jot and tittle must be fulfilled in the death of Christ. So something must be kept for it in Christ alone, not in you. You are not the one who is giving the law something to eat. The law is only that which has been reserved for it in the sacrifice in Christ Jesus. That it may find its fulfillment and satisfaction. And hence we hear that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. And also that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. So the text says, so so ate with someone that day. That day. So had never eaten with someone. But that day, they ate together. On that day of the cross, Christ and his people, those who were invited, and the law, they ate together. They ate together because Christ was fulfilling the law for all his people. Verse 25. When they had come down from the high place into the city, someone spoke with Saul on top of the house. Someone spoke with Saul on top of the house. That's Mount Calvary, as with Christ Jesus, saying, All is fulfilled. All is fulfilled. It is finished. And then they arose early, verse 26, and it was about the dawning of the day that Samuel called to Saul on top of the house and saying, Get up, that I may send you on your way. You get up, that I may send you. And Saul arose. And both of them went outside. He and Saul, as Christ arose from the dead, the dawning of the day, the law also arose, but not to remain with those invited, not to condemn those invited, those redeemed, but for it to be sent away. To be sent away to the Father by way of fulfillment because the sacrifice had been given. Someone said, get up that I may send you on your way. Get up that I may send you on your way. That is gospel preaching. The law must be sent away because of Christ. And many preachers, professing Christians, of a day will not send Saul away. They will not send Moses away. We will not have Moses to be overshadowed by the cloud on Mount of Transfiguration, on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
they will try to keep feeding Moses. That is the problem always for people who don't understand the law. They want to keep feeding Moses. They want to keep feeding Saul. They want to keep feeding the old covenant. And even hire him to bring fear and condemnation to those who have been invited to salvation. And that is not the true gospel. But this story is not over. And so the testimony of Saul continues, verse 27, as they were going down to the outskirts of the city. Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And he went on. But you stand here a while that I may announce to you the word of God, that I may give you some more information as you are going away. Let us hear what Samuel did. First Samuel 10, verse 1 and 2. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? Samuel told Saul to let his servant to go on ahead so that they may be left alone. So it's just the two of them. Why would you do that if this was for the anointing of the king of the nation? This is supposed to be a coronation event. Everyone is supposed to attend the coronation of the king. No, that's not what happens. It's just the two of them. So for a better commentary, we have to look at the anointing of yet another king in the time of Saul who succeeded Saul. A king to replace Saul. First Samuel 16. Let's go to First Samuel 16 from verse 8, beginning at verse 8. This is a familiar story. God has his man after his own heart to replace Saul. So he identified the house of Jesse and said, the man that I love is going to be found from the house of Jesse. And then the many sons of Jesse came to Samuel and God was supposed to point to him who it is who was going to be the new king of Israel. So the many sons of Jesse came and he even had some very handsome guys too. And God would say with every one of them, this is not the one that I've chosen. I don't see things the way that man sees. In other words, I do not look at the beauty of Saul as you Israel did. (laughs) I look at the heart of the man. And so the story goes, verse 8. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Saul, before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen this. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? 
Then he said, there remains yet the youngest. And there he is keeping the ship. The youngest of the brothers among the sons of Jesse was David. Christ Jesus made a little lower than the angels because he was despised of his brothers. The brothers despised David. And yet he was to be the new king and he was a mighty warrior than them. And that's Psalm 8, the fulfillment of that. Christ made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. That the humility of Christ. David, the keeper of the sheep of the Father. Christ, the good shepherd of the sheep. But how was David to be anointed? How different was it going to be for David compared to Saul? And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Saul was anointed all by himself with Samuel, but David was anointed as a type of Christ with a horn full of oil in the midst of his brethren. And that was said, David, a type of Christ, anointed and saw a picture of the Lord with not much glory as the anointing of David. Also, hear the David and Christ connection from Psalm 89. Let's go to Psalm 89 beginning at 19. I'm just going to read through to verse 28. Very short verses. David and Christ Connection, Psalm 89, beginning at 19. The psalm says, Then you spoke in a vision to your Holy One and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found my servant David. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. With whom my hand shall be established, also my arm shall strengthen him. The David of Israel was anointed by Samuel. But this David, God says, I have anointed him. So that's a different David. The enemy, verse 22, shall not outwit him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. I'll beat down his foes before his face and plague those who hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name his horn shall be exalted. Also, I'll set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, 
my God and the rock of my salvation. Also, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My mercy I'll keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm with him. So those are allusions to Christ Jesus. But David is in the picture. But you see that the words do not find proper fulfillment in David, but in Christ. He is the highest of the kings of the earth. He is God's firstborn. And it is by Christ that the covenant of God shall stand. It shall stand firm. The covenant of our salvation only stands firm in Christ. It's unmoved, which means salvation cannot be lost because of who who is the maker of the covenant. It stands firm. So when people say, oh, you lose salvation, they just don't know what they're talking about. Unfortunately so. Okay. So this is speaking to David and to the son of David. So Christ Jesus is also called David. He's just not the son of David. He is also called David. And this is why I always say, you cannot read these stories with proper understanding if they are not gospel. If they are not Christ-centered, you have to find Christ in them. So the fact that Saul was anointed alone speaks to his inferiority to David. It speaks to the inferiority of the law to Christ, of the law to grace, of the old covenant to the new covenant. If you want, the inferiority of Mount Sinai to Mount Calvary. Okay? First Samuel 10, we're almost done. Samuel continued and said, When you have departed from me today, you find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found. And now your father has ceased caring about the donkeys and is worrying about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? I thought it was curious that the first sign for Saul that the donkeys were found was that he would find two men by Rachel's tomb. His great-grandmother was Rachel. Is she who gave birth to Benjamin? And this was a sign as evidence of the recovery of the donkeys. And I'm reminded of the two angels that were over another grave (laughs) of the Lord Jesus Christ after his own resurrection because he had recovered the donkeys by his death. Here this John 12. I could not just ignore that. I was like, okay, this John 12, verse 11 to 13. Mary is also wondering, 
But Mary stood aside by the tomb weeping. As she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then, then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She, she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Saul is told to go by the tomb of Rachel, and she and he is supposed to meet with two men who are going to tell him that the donkeys have been found. They give testimony that the donkeys have been found. Mary is also wondering, kind of thinking that Jesus is lost. And if Jesus is lost, they too are lost because he's supposed to be their savior. And the two men, the two angels say, no, 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 no. No, he's alive, dude. He's alive. He is alive. I thought that was just interesting to me, to see the connections. But Samuel said to Saul, when you meet these two men over the grave of Rachel, they have a message to declare to you. They will say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found. And now we have a different problem. Your father is worried about you. The father knows the donkeys have been found and is not worried about the donkeys anymore. He's worried about you coming back and saying, what shall I do about my son? And the emphasis is amazing to me. I'm going to bring another text. It was amazing to me to see that this was a very common thread in 1 Samuel 9 and 10, the recovery of the donkeys. I'm like, what do these donkeys do? <laughs> the point is that the recovery of the donkeys is God's message. That is his message. That the donkeys have been recovered by Christ. The donkeys that the law was sent to look for and could not recover have been found apart from the law. Righteousness apart from the law. But by the help of Samuel, by the work of Christ, by the work of the sacrifice. The donkeys did not find themselves. They were found and they were brought back home through the mediation of a sacrifice by Samuel. And so what do we tell the law? What do we now say to the law? Now your father has ceased caring about the donkeys and is worried about your own return. You should return to the father. The law must go back to the father theologically, not through FedEx or the postal service, but by way of fulfillment. That is what the return is speaking to. Just as the ark of God 
that had been captured by the Philistines had to return back to its place, but it could not go back empty. It had to be accompanied by a guilty offering and things that make for an atonement. So the returning of things back to God just means by way of fulfillment. Okay? So Jesus said to the point in Matthew 5, 18, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle by no means pass from the Lord till all is fulfilled. So now that all has been fulfilled, it is coming it will pass away, it will be sent back to the Father. Conclusion. A conclusion is going to be in First Samuel 10, verse 14 to 16. Then Saul's angle said to him, and his servant, where did you go? <laughs> what was your mission? So he said, to look for the donkeys. When we saw that they were nowhere to be found, we went to Samuel. So Saul's angle just shows up from nowhere in the conversation. And he asked the young lad, where are you guys gone? So Saul defines the mission from the father. The mission of the law to go look for the donkeys and bring them home. But then it also testifies and says how unsuccessful it was on that mission. He said, when we saw that there were nowhere to be found, we gave up our search and we went to a better man, to a higher and better prophet, Samuel. When we saw that we could not find them, we went to the man of God, when the law saw that it could not recover sinners, it left the matter to Christ. And that is why Christ Jesus came after the covenant of the law, where the book of Hebrews says, for the law not made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So Christ is revealed in the context of the law's failure to cause our salvation. And that is what is being said. So Samuel was a better hope for the recovery of the donkeys, as Christ is the better hope of our salvation. Samuel was the man of God, and it was by his mediation, through the sacrifice, that the donkeys were found. In other words, there's no salvation apart from Christ dying. There's no justification. There's no holiness. There's no sanctification. There's no adoption. There's no eternal life apart from Christ coming and dying. The law cannot find you as to bring you back to God even by way of sanctification. Those people say, oh, you are sanctified by the law. No, the law cannot sanctify you back to God. The law cannot sanctify a donkey. You need the blood of Christ. Okay? Verse 15 and 16, and Saul's angle said, Tell me, please, what Samuel told you. So Saul said to his angle, He told us plainly 
that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom, he did not tell him what Samuel is saying. The man of God told us plainly that the donkeys have been found. The man of God told us. That's what Christ says. It doesn't matter what I say or any other preacher says. This is what the man of God says. The donkeys have been found. They have been reconciled to God. They have been justified. They have been perfected. And if anyone claims to be a man of God, to be a preacher, they must plainly, he says, he plainly spoke to the matter of the recovery of the donkeys and said, the donkeys have been found without adding any other conditions to them being found. Plainly, the donkeys have been found. Found because a lamp was found to die in their place. Because that is how the firstborn of a donkey could live. Remember, we are all firstborns because of Christ. We are in the firstborn, so we are the firstborn. God does not have grandkids. No grandbabies. Only has firstborns. So what does that mean for you and me? It should help you in how you listen to preachers. They should plainly say the donkeys have been found. With no conditions. Also means your recovery to God has nothing to do with anything that you did or are doing. 100%. Nothing to do with that. 100% the work of God through Christ. The Christ who came and said, praying to the Father, sanctifying them, set them apart by your truth, the truth that they have been found. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, also I have sent them into the world to testify of the same truth. That's what Christ has us to do. He has given us a mission to declare this truth to all his lost donkeys, that they have been found. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself in death on the cross. I set myself apart for their sake, that they also may be sanctified, set apart by the truth. This truth is what sets you apart from everybody else. You know that you are a donkey that has been recovered, plainly spoken. And there was one donkey that was found by Jesus <laughs> in John 9. And the law keepers, the law keepers always give trouble. And you know the story of the blind man who was born blind from death. And the Pharisees were giving him a lot of trouble because Jesus had healed him, opened his eyes. And it's one of the most interesting conversations in the New Testament. But this is what this donkey had to say. Because the Jews, the Pharisees were saying, oh, Jesus is a sinner. This man has to be a sinner. And the blind man says, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. But you can discover that for yourself. <laughs> I do not know anything about that. But I'm going to tell you one thing that I know. 
That though I was blind, now I see. That's the only thing I know. I was blind. Uh, right from birth, I was blind. I know for sure I was a blind donkey. But now I see. Plainly. Plainly. Because the man had been blind, so he now could see plainly. And so when we see the gospel, preach the gospel, believe the gospel, we have to see the clarity of it. The truth of the gospel is not hazy. It's not blurred. It's plain. They've been found. The donkeys have been found. And that's the plain speech of the Holy Spirit. It is wonderful to our ears. Amen. We're done. All right, let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for these many words that have been spoken about the recovery of the donkeys as who were lost because of sin and we could not be recovered by the work of the law. We had to be recovered by a better and higher person, Christ Jesus, through his own sacrifice of himself, having given the law its portion of the sacrifice to eat and be satisfied, and for the law to be sent back in fulfillment to the Father, and us who are the invited partake of the sacrifice by faith. We eat of the body of Christ by faith, and we thank you for this wonderful, marvelous truth. Let it be made plain that the donkeys have been found because that is God's message. And it is marvelous in our sight. We honor you, glorify you. For all those who hear this message and those who shall hear, may you bless them with ears. We honor you, glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good people who were tuned in, I hope you are happy donkeys. <laughs> Don't call me a donkey. Yes, you're a donkey. A happy one. <laughs>